Our message is from Titus. So I'll read from Titus chapter 1. And I'm actually going to read, starting with a kind of a modified verse 9. An elder must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would find us uh, none of these things, that we would be uh, acceptable in your sight. And yet we know that your word is the differentiator, that that is how you make people acceptable. Do they embrace your word? Do they embrace your son's sacrifice? And so we pray, Father, for all who are here, to all who hear this message, that they would be found acceptable in your sight by believing in this word, by believing in your son. We now thank you and ask you to guide us as we seek to understand and apply this to our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this is part three of a seven part series. Parts one and two were following orders and choosing lieutenants. And so the first week we covered following orders and Titus's task was twofold set things in order and appoint elders. And so last week we discussed this second point about point, appointing elders. So we discussed the role of the elder and the qualification of an elder. And now we get into pretty much all the others that he was to do set in order. And we'll start at verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now I read all of this and so I'd read what was in verse 9 for the elder must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict and then we go into this for there are many insubordinate see the four there tells you something came before it that you ought to pay attention to and it's capitalizing on this that the man of God the elder must exhort and convict those who contradict and so to exhort is to praise. It's to say you're going the right direction, yea you. To convict is not to praise. It's to instead correct. And hopefully then people are open to that correction. Not all are. But so Paul goes into a detailed rundown of the situation in Crete as he sees it. We know he's just been here, he's left, He's left Titus in charge in order to take care of these things that he's assigned him. And so in military lingo, I would say that he's assessing the situation. He's giving a situation 
report, a sit rep, as it's called in the military. So he's updating Titus on the sit rep from his perspective. This is how I saw it when I left. I really doubt that much has changed in this time. He's now writing to Titus to remind him this is the situation. Now, this letter is obviously, from my perspective, a very private letter. And so this was not intended for distribution amongst the people that he's writing to in Crete. So now, Paul's letters we know, and when Titus read the books of the Bible up here for us a couple weeks ago, we went through, in order, Paul's 13 letters. And so, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Those nine are letters Paul wrote to churches. The next four are letters that he wrote to people. 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. When he wrote to the churches, he often told them, share this, read this. This is for public consumption. He would sometimes tell them, I sent these people a letter, get that letter from them and have it read in your church and you give them this letter I just wrote to you. He's having them share the letters that he wrote to these churches. He wants them all to be benefiting from it. Now, I don't see that with Titus. First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. And they've had that name now for about oh, 300 years. And I don't regard this one specifically, and most likely both of Timothy's as well, to be those that Paul intended to just be handed out to everybody. Here, read this. No, these are very private. These went to specific individuals charged with specific work in the church to which they were ministering. Now, when Paul wrote to churches, he could be blunt. When you read what he wrote to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, he could be pretty blunt with them, but not as blunt as he is in what I just read to you. He is very, very blunt here concerning the whole island of Crete. He's insulted this whole island. And so I don't think he would want this to get out there. Now, because of this, because he's insulted this whole island, some commentators say Paul erred in doing this, that he had no right to write these types of things in this letter to Titus. Now, I would imagine that those people are liberals because they just really have a problem with a lot of the Bible. And many people, many people have a problem with Paul specifically because Paul is just difficult to stomach at times based on their own liberal agendas. But now, elders have to communicate like this at times. It doesn't pay to sugarcoat things whenever you're discussing with older elders, other elders what needs to occur. And so you have to trust one another when you're telling them the truth, what your insight is to a particular situation. You have to trust that they will uh, act with discretion with that knowledge that you're sharing with them. But you're only sharing it with them because they're in the position of needing to know. This is sensitive information. It's for your eyes only. It's as we're discussing it. That's what it's about. Now, we elders have wives. We just talked about that last week in the qualifications. And oftentimes, elders talk with their wives. My wife will testify to you that I don't talk to her much. And so I don't tend to share with her much of what's going on. She'll be the last to know when something's going on in her church, sadly. And so people might expect her to know, but she doesn't. 
I, I know, I, I don't tell her much. Now I know though, I'm not saying that what I'm doing is right. I'm not saying what other, do, do, other elders do in sharing with their wives is right or wrong. I'm just saying that's who I am. That's how we act. Now, it's not that I don't trust my wife. I trust my wife completely, except when it comes to sharing the news that she's a grandma, because that I couldn't quite trust her with, I don't think, or Micah couldn't anyway. She kind of jumped the gun on that news a little bit. But Micah was very understanding in that regard. But elders have this responsibility of withholding information from everyone pretty much all the time, but then sharing it with people and not sugarcoating it, being very, very blunt and candid whenever you're sharing it. That's what you need to do. So now, that's why when we talked last week, one of the main aspects of being an elder is having integrity and acting and speaking with discretion. If a man lacks those two things, then that's just, he, should, he shouldn't be an elder. Uh, you just have to be in a position of trust. And you have, can't uh, trust people that are going to act and speak without discretion. Now, I listened to this portion of text from 10 to 16 uh, probably 40 times this week on my commute, if not more. I would, I, would, I would put it on repeat and I would just let it keep repeating the whole way down to work and back. And uh, I kept doing it because I kept looking for how to tease it apart. And it's interesting. It's difficult to do that when you listen to stuff. When you're looking at a printed thing, it's easy enough. The words aren't moving around on you. It's not like they're slippery. You can look back anytime you want. When you're listening, whoop, there it went, there it went. And I can't keep hitting back. And apparently I'm not that good at memorizing anymore. I couldn't memorize seven simple verses in the space of a couple days, or at least I didn't work hard enough at it. But I think you would agree with me if you were to listen to this 40 or 50 times that this is a pretty negative view of Cretan Cretans. Very negative. He has nothing good to say in here. The only good thing that he really says is only theoretical in verse 15, to the pure all things are pure. That's a theoretical statement. I don't think he's saying that about specific individuals he knows in Crete. The other only positive things that he says is in the end of verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. And that's a goal. That's not a present reality. That's where he wants Titus to get these people of Crete. But now, as I listened, as I uh, had a printed form of it, and I was uh, analyzing that, I came down to separate this into three sections. In verses 10 and 11, I believe what Paul is introducing are the villains. These are villains in our story. In verses 12 through 14, 12, 13, and 14, even though he refers to these people as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, these are the victims in our story. And in verses 15 and 16, he differentiates between belief and unbelief, and he emphasizes that unbelievers act improperly and will be judged for that. So I believe that section is mostly about unbelievers. So we've got villains, we've got victims, and we've got unbelievers. And so we'll kind of walk through it with that in mind. So now, I first want to point out a similarity between Titus and Timothy. 
Titus was here on Crete. Timothy was there in Ephesus, like, you know, several hundred miles north of him. And yet they were facing very similar situations. And the letter of 1 Timothy and the letter of Titus were probably written within days or weeks of one another. Paul wrote them both. And he's addressing them in very, addressing very similar problems. He's challenging them with very similar things. But I want to point out a difference. So in 1 Timothy, I'll read 1 Timothy 1 verses 4 through 6. He's telling Timothy, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. So see, he says, some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Some. Some have turned to idle talk. Now listen what is said in Titus. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. So the situations faced by the two men, I think, are different. Titus is facing an uphill battle on the island of Crete. He is faced with many, many insubordinate, idle-talking people that he has to contend with, that he has to compete with in many ways. Now, Timothy in Ephesus is in a much more mature church, one in which Paul has labored extensively and has probably benefited from that greatly. So even though there are similarities between the two letters, and I'll get to, I'll mention some of them, know that Titus is facing a more difficult and intractable problem on Crete, and he needs help. So he needs these elders to help him. There were also, uh, there was more opposition in uh, Crete than there was in Ephesus, and I believe there were also fewer people to help. Because in Ephesus, we know that about most likely five, six years earlier when Paul was passing through Ephesus or near Ephesus, returning to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey, he stopped and he had the elders come to him from Ephesus. So we know that they had some elders. They're referred to in the letter to the Ephesians. No elders are referred to in the book of Titus. And so it would seem that also the Ephesus church was more mature in the sense that uh, Timothy also had people to help him there, whereas it seems doubtful that Titus had at least as many people to help him in Crete. None are referenced explicitly, at least not being there with him. Now, similar challenges also on the two islands, and, or on uh, Ephesus and on Crete, and let me just mention a few. This is a comparison of terminology that Paul used in writing to Titus in chapter 1 and writing to First uh, Timothy in First uh, Timothy chapter 1. In verse 10 here, he refers to the insubordinate. He used the same term to Timothy, insubordinate men. In verse 10 also, he used the term idle talkers. And to Timothy, he said, some have turned aside to idle talk. In verse 12, he referred to liars. In 1 Timothy 1.10, he also referred to liars. In verse 13, he refers to those that are sound in the faith. He wants them to be sound in the faith. In verse 10, he references people that are acting contrary to sound doctrine. In verse 14 to Titus, he references Jewish fables. And in verse 4 to Timothy, he references fables and endless genealogies. 
So you could see they're facing very, very similar challenges in the two places. And if you compare all of Titus to all of 1 Timothy, you see many more uh, similarities. It's just that's not the purpose here, so I wanted to move on. But still, they're facing very similar situations. I think myself that Titus is perhaps the more mature of the two and perhaps the more capable of the two in the sense that he can handle this island of Crete perhaps with a little more uh, expected success than Timothy would. I don't know. But it's just from what I can sense through this, uh, Titus was really handed a difficult. And you give your, you give your harder problem to the, to the person that can handle it. So again, we talked about three groups. Villains, and these are very vocal opponents. They are leading heretical sects, and they are constantly trying to get people, converts, get them to believe. Verses 12 through 14, the victims, the people of Crete. We know that they are insulted by Epimenides as well as by Paul, but that's the victims here. And then verses 15 and 16, the unbelievers. And this could be anybody. It's anybody on that island that's, that's caught up in unbelief. Now let's go into this uh, talking about the villains. Let me reread. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. When it comes down to it, some of the similarities you see across here is they are of the circumcision, and so these are Judaizers. These are people that have adopted Christianity, but they've just merged it in with what they already were practicing. And even that was probably already a corruption of pure Judaism. And yet they're just drawing it in. Syncretism has been and remains a horrible problem for the church. Syncretism is where the church moves into an area and people come to, the, come to the Lord, the Holy Spirit saves them, but they don't want to give up their religious practices. And so they implement them within Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church has even to some degree tolerated or even uh, begun this in some cultures, thinking that this is an okay thing to do in allowing them to essentially be comfortable in Catholicism. And so they allow them to adopt some of these syncretistic uh, practices. Now, this is not unique, though. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the high places. The high places were like never removed. And yet this was all incorporated from a culture that sacrificed to idols on high places. And yet all through the time of the judges, all through the time of the kings, you constantly see high places referenced. The people would not disabuse themselves of sacrificing their own up on those high places. Now supposedly they're up there now sacrificing to Jehovah. That's what Samuel did. He always went to the high places as well totally against scripture, but yet this is syncretism. It's the corruption of the pure religion based on some cultural, some former religious practice. You see it in the idolatry. You see them practicing idolatry, even in the wilderness as they're escaping from the Egyptians. And several centuries later, when Jeroboam rebels with the northern kingdoms, he sets up those gold bulls and people don't leave. You have some people leave, flee to Judah, the southern kingdom, where they can still worship God as he was intended to be worshipped. But you have many of them remain behind and justify what they're doing, the syncretistic practice. 
You had David adopting polygamy as a cultural good. I believe these people even regarded it as a beneficial addition to practices. And so even though their religion tells them not to do it, they're, they're, yes, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing in our society. This is what's right, what's proper. And so you have people, like when, when I preached a while ago about the, the ark and how David uh, educated himself on how to transport the ark, and so he did not make any of those mistakes he'd made. He had it all done properly. Did, then did he determine that polygamy was also wrong? Did he go that deeply? I don't know. I don't know if any of his marriages were after that. He'd already married a lot of women. He seemed to keep marrying women. He at least had Abishag, even in his old age. Again, because that was just kind of the prerogative of kings. They were allowed. They were special. God's word didn't apply to them in equal measure as it did to everybody else, all the peons. But that's the degree to which syncretism, to which our adoption of cultural practices in our religion can, can come to accommodate uh, error. And it begins small, perhaps, but it eventually becomes very big. So these Jewish teachers were very creative in injecting Christianity into their practices. We know that they retained circumcision. They were of the circumcision. We know that they uh, upheld these dietary laws and that they were also obsessed with genealogies. That's mentioned in several places in the New Testament. There were probably other things as well, and we might mention a couple here late, later. So these false teachers were, in order here, insubordinate. So what that means is they refused to be bound by the word of God. They refused to answer to any earthly authority. They were independent. They were just out there. They were idle talkers. They said a lot, very winsome, very charismatic, but it amounted to nothing in the end because what they said had no value. It didn't come from the word. They were deceivers. That means they knew what they were doing, and they were doing it intentionally. They knew that they were not in accord with Scripture. They knew they were not in accord with God, but they didn't care. And why? The last one. Because they were after dishonest game. They were smooth talkers, and they didn't want to give up the easy money that they'd had coming in. Now, I'm going to do something that is, you'll, many of you will find pretty unusual, I think. But I'm going to go back 33 years. I want to give you some examples of charlatans, this type of behavior. It was 1984, and it might have even been earlier because my memory isn't great. But in 1984, I'd been a believer for three years. I was living uh, in Orange County. And you would turn on the TV, and you would see this guy on one of the stations. His name was Dr. Gene Scott. Anybody recognize the name Dr. Gene Scott? Toby? I'm thankful that most of you don't recognize that name. This guy was very odd. But as I would watch him, and it, it, it was kind of like a train wreck. You know, it's just hard to turn your eyes away. And so when I'd flip him past him, I'd, I'd just stop and watch him for a bit. He was just really interesting. He, he was in a nice business suit, but he always had a fedora on. He had this beige or white fedora. And he would be on a raised Diaz, and he would just be talking. He's in an easy chair. He's leaning back. He's just talking, talking, talking. The man was extremely, extremely bright and very eloquent. And he would just talk and talk and talk. Well, this was essentially a televangelist. He was one of the early televangelists. 
Uh, he had grown up in the church. His father was a preacher in Oroville, California, up north of Sacramento towards Reading. And uh, yet he had rebelled against this. He had gone off to school at Stanford in the uh, 40s and earned a PhD in uh, psychology. So he got a true PhD in philosophy, rather, I'm sorry. And uh, yet, as he was pursuing his doctorate, he returned to the Lord. And so he studied out the resurrection. He came to believe that Jesus Christ was real, that all of this Christianity stuff had merit. And so he joined the Assemblies of God. He was ordained into the Assemblies of God, and he became a missionary. And he served with them over 10 years. He would travel the world being a missionary. He spoke at a huge conference for the Assembly of God in 1968 in St. Louis. And he and three other men addressed 7,000 uh, visitors that day. And I think that might be where he caught the bug for this celebrity that he was to become. Within two years, he resigned his ordination from the Assembly of God, and he just basically went independent from that point forward. He went to Oroville, where he'd grown up with his father, where his dad was a pastor, and he founded the Westcott Christian Center. But then within a few years, he moved to Glendale, California. By this time, he was very, very popular, and he was developing this following. In 1975, he began nightly broadcasts of the Faith Broadcasting Network. And so he began, eventually, this went to all nations around the world. He would do it 24 hours via satellite. He had open disdain for uh, people like Jerry Falwell or Jimmy Swagger. He hated those televangelists. He said he was not a televangelist. He was a pastor and a teacher. Now, he was odd, though. You'd see him in this suit and that fedora, and he'd just be talking, and he'd get up and write on this board, and, and he'd record all these, and you can still get them. He passed away 12 years ago, but his ministry is still going strong. But I bring this up, though, because this man was at the height of his fame, probably in the 80s and 90s, um, drawing in about a million dollars a month. I mean, he had multiple homes across the country. Uh, he had chauffeurs drive him around to places. Uh, when he died in 2005 at the age of like 76, his third wife uh, inherited his, his uh, mission, essentially. He had personally ordained her to take over for his mission. And she still runs it here 11 years later, 12 years later. Uh, now, she was much, much younger than him. Uh, I'm not sure why he divorced his first two wives, but he did. And uh, people just flocked to him. He was very charismatic, uh, had a wonderful story, wrote many books. And he would, I can remember, he would look you in the eye from that camera, and it's like he's looking right into your soul. And he would say, pick up the telephone. And he would just, and now he could talk a lot, but he would just sit there silently staring at you sitting in your house daring you not to pick up the telephone and give him the money he needed right now to perpetuate this mission that he was on. Uh, very, very charismatic guy, a very eerie guy. I never sent him money. I was young. I didn't have much. I don't think I would have anyway. But yet, I always paused and watched this guy. He, it was just very interesting to me. He, he, he just, like all the other televangelists, I just blitzed right by them. I never paid them any mind. But this guy was unusual. 
Later on, periodically, he started wearing a leather jacket. He abandoned the business suit. He had this black fedora. He would periodically have one of those uh, jungle pith helmets on. Just bizarre, bizarre man. And yet, people kept sending him money. Now, that was personal for me, not personal for you. I'm going to move ahead a bit. Now I'm going back 20 years ago, 1997. Now, uh, I thought Phil might be here. I forgot he was going to be up in Minnesota. But Phil was at my house. I think we had something going on, maybe a July 4th picnic or something. But he asked me very innocently, he said, have you seen Gary North's recent newsletters? He's concerned about this Y2K bug. And I said, no, I didn't know a thing about these, uh, this Y2K bug. But so I began reading about this, and I became very concerned. I would say I became obsessed, and I think my wife would agree. So I was reading constantly. I was reading everything. And so here in the fall of that year, fall of 97, I wanted to reach people. I really did. I had this evangelist heart for rescuing people from this coming calamity. And uh, so I thought, okay, the most inexpensive way to do this is to write a book. And so I thought, I'm going to write a book. And I knew from the instant I decided to write a book, I was going to write a book. And I did write a book. And it's this one. Has anybody ever seen this? Some people have seen this. So I wrote a book. Printed 750 copies. I later learned that they call these vanity books because you write them and publish them yourself. So I wrote a vanity book. I drove out to Kearney and picked it up from the publisher. But so I had 750 of these now. I had bunches of boxes of these books. Now, how do you sell books? You know, I don't know that many people. And so I, I sold them to like the 50 people that I did know, and then I had 700 books. <laughs> so I started getting, getting invited to speak on this topic. And it was interesting. I liked it. I am a ham, I guess. And so I would go out to these talks, and then um, I would talk about this, this challenge, and then I would uh, typically go to a table afterwards, and people would buy my book, and I'd sign it. And it was a lot of fun. And so that went on for months, and I'm selling these books, and the stacks are dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. But then I went to be a speaker at a big conference. I forget where it was, but it was here in Omaha. I think it was downtown. And so there were people there selling gold and food and, and uh, viaticals, this kind of insurance uh, fraud, some would say. But, uh, but that was like the big times. I mean, I was in the big times now. And so I ordered 750 more books. I mean, wow, I'm hitting the big times now. So at that conference, I had this person come up to me and said that this woman wanted to talk to me. And I'm like, okay. And so they take me to meet this woman. And here she's this lady preacher. I hadn't known she was at this conference. I didn't hear her speak. But she's this lady preacher. And she's talking to me about wanting to do an exclusive deal with me on these books. And that I could go on tour with her and speak and all this. And I'm just thinking to me to myself, this is really weird now. This is getting weird. Because I could kind of tell that she was, it was all... A showcasing. There was this, I was being led down a primrose path. My, my, my radar went up. And so then I told her, she told me she was going to buy, I think, I forget, 50 of my books. And I said, okay. And I said, it's this much. I gave her a deal. But then she heard that I had given somebody else a better deal. And she, I could see her eyes. And she says, well, I'll give you half now. And you can deliver the other set of the books tomorrow. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm seeing the rest of this money. But being a person of integrity, I said, okay. And so I gave her the books I had. I didn't have enough. And so then the next day I 
drop these off at the hotel, the other books, knowing I would never see the money for them. Um, but then the viatical guy contacted me. So he wants in on this deal too. So now he wants to take me on the road. He wants to have me be this, this uh, person that is so sincere, so concerned about people, willing to get up there and say, this, all this bad stuff is going to happen. I was like their trained pony, I began to think. I'm like, whoa. Now, I was still interested in it because I thought, well, if this guy's willing to give me a bunch of money, maybe I'll do it. And so, uh, but selling books was not the way to get rich. I mean, I could tell you that right now. Uh, really, it takes, you have to sell a million books to make much money. So I did that. And so that fellow wasn't interested. It all fell apart. And I am so thankful because really God saved me from becoming huckster and now even though my antenna was up i was younger more immature perhaps more open to this type of thing but really i could have been a huckster like these people that i'm criticizing right now in crete i could have been a huckster like these people that i saw y2k was the next big thing it's just something comes along and these hucksters just gravitate to it they have radar built in they are deceivers and they know when opportunity is coming their way and they're quick to seize upon it. That is why I call them villains. These people aren't out there for your best interests. I was. I was obsessed and I was off kilter a bit. But after that, when that kind of evaporated, I lost a lot of interest. This was by early 99. I lost a lot of interest in following Y2K. I just thought, well, year and a half, two years, we've made a lot of progress. I, I uh, did a radio program for a while where I'm kind of talking about what's going on. But again, I was involving a lot of my own money, a lot of my own time. And you don't see hucksters doing that. They're usually involving other people's money and getting it. And they're telling you, send me money, send me money. And uh, I would never do that. I still can't. I, I'm not much of a marketer. So now we go into the victims. Chapter tw uh, verse uh, 12 through 14. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. I mentioned it a little bit ago, but Epimenides is the person that's attributed with this. Quote, he was from Crete, and so he was criticizing his own people. They're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul said, this testimony is true. Now let's take those terms one at a time. Liars. One of the things that you really address as a parent is lying. You have to disabuse your children of the propensity to lie. Um, until you do, you just can't trust anything and they're not going to develop into a person of integrity at all. As long as they're willing to escape from something that they consider risky by lying, they will continue to lie. And so we have to make it painful for our children to lie to us. And yet, now, here we are, let's say that didn't happen. They're out in the world, they're adults. Now they're just liars. They're just older. They've lied a lot. They're more skilled at it, more capable liars. And so now they can easily then turn into those deceivers when they see opportunity. A man I knew, a man I worked for at NASA long, long ago, I was new there, and this gets a little complicated, but I'll try to be quick. I was new there. I'd only been there a couple months. 
I came into a group called RIM. That was my branch. There was another branch called RIA. And right from the beginning, I was working with both branches, RIM and RIA. I missed a meeting with the assistant branch chief for this RIA organization because I was called into an emergency meeting by the branch manager for RIM. He told me that someone, he told us, our whole team, that someone was leaving, someone had given notice. I then went to talk with this assistant branch chief and I said, I'm sorry I missed your meeting. I said, I was called into this emergency meeting and then I let slip that this person had resigned. I said, please, please don't tell anybody. Our branch chief hasn't told anybody yet. He said, okay. Within five minutes, our branch chief was told by the head of the branch chief over here in RIA, he just walked past his office. He said, I heard so-and-so resigned. I'm here to help. He was only doing it to brag. He was only doing it to show that he's got this network out there. And I felt so used. I went to that fellow. Not, te not, not 10 minutes earlier, I'd asked him to keep it quiet, and he said he would. I said, why did you tell? I didn't tell. I didn't say anything. He lied right to my face. That man went on to become a multimillionaire, but he's not a man of integrity in my opinion. He lied right to my face that he would honor my wishes and not tell anybody. And then he ran right down the hall to talk to his boss. Told him, his boss went and told my boss. It was horrible. I never respected him beyond that. I didn't want to work with him after that. Liars will eventually suffer for this type of behavior. People will learn that they're not people of integrity. They won't be trusted. I don't care if they're a billionaire. I don't care if they're a hundred millionaire. They will fail in life for such actions. The word Crete is actually based on the Greek word lie. I mean, that's how these people got the name of their island is that everybody from this island were a bunch of liars. So that's a difficult reputation to overcome. You don't want to develop a reputation for lying. And I'm speaking to you young people. You might think that you got out of a discipline case, out of a spanking, but when you lie, you are sullying your character forever. You are not behaving like God's child. God's child would never do that. You always tell the truth. God values the truth so much. The next one is evil beasts. These people behave savagely, rudely, instinctively, and like animals. That's what it means. They are like evil beasts. Lazy gluttons. They don't want to work. They just want to eat and drink all day. I think there's a song like that. Right? See, lazy gluttons. This island was filled with people like this. Liars. Slave to their passions, slave to their animal uh, passions, and lazy gluttons. And their character made them susceptible to what comes next, to believing Jewish fables and to believing commandments of men, of men such as touch not, taste not. Now, you would think that people that are liars themselves, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons would not be susceptible to being deceived by people that want to take advantage of them. But you'd be wrong. Because such people are always looking for an easy way. Imagine an animal that's hungry, hungry, hungry. And there's a trap out there with food in it. And you see that animal going against all of their better instincts to go try and get to that food, and then they get caught. 
That is what these people were like. They are cunning, yes, but they're so hungry for the easy way, the easy path of life. And so they are tricked into these things. These villains, they make it seem so good, so palatable. And yet, it's just like poison going down, but you don't know it until afterwards. So laziness made them more susceptible to this. They don't want to work for anything. They want it the easy way. Now, many of you have probably seen this Nigerian prince that wants to have you get a big chunk of money for helping him get money into the U.S. Who has received that email or who has seen that email? Yeah. Now, are you all wealthy? Have you all helped that Nigerian prince get to the United States and help launder his money for him? No? No? Okay. Well, I happen to know of someone that did help that Nigerian prince, and sadly, he lost his money. He lost his wife because his wife thought him the fool for believing that that Nigerian prince was going to help him. Now, I'm not going to tell you who it was. It was a long time ago. It was probably back when that thing was brand new and not as prolific as it became. But I thought to myself, no one, no one will ever fall for that. But people do. People do because people want that easy path. They want that quick buck. When I was a kid, I was probably 16, 16, 17, a Ponzi scheme went through our little rural town in Ohio, and our family got sucked up into it. What this was was you sell this thing, you get this little letter, and it says, send these top three people 50 bucks. And then you make 10 envelopes and you send it to all the people on the list. And then you move your name onto the bottom of the list. And supposedly this is going to lead to you getting just hundreds and hundreds of $50 bills in the mail in a few weeks. And you think, oh, that's foolish. Who would fall for that? Well, I tell you, I did. I was 16. My dad did. My older brothers did. Many of my coworkers did. I mean, we were just fools. And so now I didn't have 50 bucks. I fell for it in spirit. I helped my, my best friend talk his mom into giving us 50 bucks and getting her name in this. This is too good to be true. And this was a lady that had lost her husband. And she was not in a position to squander $50. She even asked a good friend of hers. And he said, it's a, it's a trap. It's a trick. But she went against her better, his better judgment because this 16-year-old kid was telling her it was too good to be true. It was, this was a good deal. But see, these things happen. And this is so common. You see it all the time. And yet it's hard to convince people that it's not good. That it's too good to be true, but yet they want to believe it so badly. And they act upon it. Well, what's $50, you know, or what's $5, or what's this or that? They think it's worth the risk. It, it's just they can't resist that shiny object that they've been promised. So now I mentioned earlier that there was really only one positive statement in this. And that's in verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Paul has hope here. He gives hope to Titus. He asks Titus to give that hope to these people. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Earlier, he described them as evil beasts. And when I hear this phrase, rebuke them sharply, I can just imagine... You know, have you ever had an animal getting up in your business and you just don't like it? They're even your pet, but you smack them in the snout. They learn. 
They learn not to get up in your business then because their noses are sensitive. That's the way I see this. These people are so base that that is what they respond to. Rebuke them sharply. Now, we know that we're not talking about physical action here. We're talking about verbal action here. But don't pussyfoot around with these people. Rebuke them sharply. They need to hear it sharply. That they can be sound in the faith. So good things comes of that. A good thing came of that. But it's not easy. It's not easy to rebuke someone sharply. You have to get up your courage to do that. But the Cretans can only grow in true faith if these false faiths are destroyed. Now, why would they not give up? Why would they not give up this false faith that they have? Well, it requires humility first. They have to acknowledge that they've been fooled. They have to acknowledge that they've made an error. That their faith in these shucksters is misplaced. It's hard to do that because now you're having to overcome that hill. I've, I've invested time and money in this effort. That's why people tend not to leave cults. They don't want to admit that they've been had. And then it requires even further humility because see in the cult, you're told it's up to you. You earn, you earn your salvation. All the, all the cults are like that. You need to do this, 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 and then you're in. And oh, by the way, send money to this P.O. box. <laughs> so now see, that is a system that we can all adopt. Oh, that's so simple. And if all it takes is time, hard work, sweat equity, we're willing to do it. So see, again, it requires great humility to accept the free gift of God. Because by doing that, I'm acknowledging nothing I am, nothing I have is good enough for God. I have to accept that. I have to be humbled and accept the fact that I'm worthless in and of myself. The only way I'll get beyond this is if someone helps me up. I can't get up there myself. It's too high. And yet so many of us are unwilling to accept that from God, that gift. So that was the situation with these victims that Titus was trying to resolve. And then we come to his description of belief and unbelief here in 15 and 16 to the pure all things are pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but even their mind and conscience are defiled they profess to know God but in works they deny him being abominable disobedient and disqualified for every good work I think Bible commentators are often really really neat people who have lived very very tame lives because when I read this, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, I see something totally different than what Bible commentators wrote about. They say, oh, they're talking about uh, animals, and all animals are pure now. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That is not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is base sin. He's talking about the fact that when people go from bad to worse, evil to evil to evil to evil, more evil, they corrupt everything they touch. People that descend into depravity end up selling their children for sexual favors. 
I mean, it's crazy what people do. I mean, people are so evil. And so that's what this is talking about. To the pure, all things are pure, meaning that when you are pure, you tend to see the pure in things. You tend to seek out the pure in things. It isn't that you're Pollyanna. Is it? it isn't that you don't know that there's all this ugliness in the world. It's just that you choose not to value it, to chase it, to admire it, to go anywhere near it. If you live by God's law, you're kept pure. That's a side effect of living by God's law. So God purifies your mind. He purifies your heart and your thoughts, your actions, your desires. But to the degree that we dabble in sin, even as believers, is the degree to which then we are corrupting the very purity that God is putting into us. We willfully dilute the purity that God is having us be sanctified with. So see, we avoid the stain of sin by resisting it and by repenting of it when we fall. But when we turn the corner in a habitual sin and we start embracing it and we stop repenting of it, then that stain of sin will grow bigger and bigger and bigger in your life until it consumes you. And especially for those that know and love God, you must resist that. Now, it's understandable that people that are pretending to know God will fall prey to that. But yet, it's those that really do know God that are abandoning the road of sanctification that I really, my heart goes out to. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Abominable, another... uh, word for that would be disgusting, that these people are disgusting. So see, sin leads to greater sin. That's why Jesus described it as a road. Wide is the path, broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's a road that people are walking down. And when you get turned around on that road, you know it because you're now going against the crowd, the flow that's trying to drag you deeper down that road to destruction. Good works, true good works, can only arise from believers. That's what this says. That these that do not believe are disqualified for every good work. Nothing they do pleases God. I don't care, I don't care how godly it would seem to be from the outside. How helpful it would seem to be from the outside. It's not a good work. Not in God's eyes. Because good work only emanates from good people good people who know God and who want to do it to please God. If they are doing something good, it's only because they want something out of it. There's some angle that they're working. It is self-aggrandizing in some way. You know that. God tells us that. It's just one of those, if this, then that. It's a rule. Now, Paul told Titus that the deceiver's mouths must be stopped. Makes it seem very confrontational. Yet, look at what he told Timothy in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, 
but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Do you see the difference? He's telling Timothy in this other letter that went out about the same time, withdraw yourself from such men. With Titus, he's telling him, stop their mouths. So see, we can't just do one and not the other, just this one, not that one. So what does it call for? Wisdom, discretion. What Paul is telling them to do is based on his knowledge of where they're at, who they are, what the situations are that they're facing. So with Titus, he knows they must take the initiative. They must go against this evil that will otherwise infiltrate this island of Crete, take over these new believers that the Holy Spirit has left in his wake, and now Paul has gone and he's leaving Titus to do that duty. So the Holy Spirit leads, and then we must follow. And so the elders have to act with wisdom and discretion. They have to do what they perceive to do the right thing. Sometimes they'll be right, sometimes they'll be wrong. That's the nature of us making decisions. But we try to be guided by God. And so the goal, though, is that they would be sound in the faith. That's the goal of all of this. That is why this is called establishing discipline. And so the, there's the following orders. There is the uh, choosing the lieutenants. And there is establishing the disciplines. You've got these lieutenants. Now use them. Put them to use in your field. Get them to work and do the right thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the fact that we can rely upon you and that this is not done in our own strength. And yet, too often, we make excuses. We give in to sin and temptation. And we come to regard the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as inadequate in our life. And for this, Father, we repent. We know that our flesh is weak, and yet we know that we have to rely upon you to help us overcome the temptations. And so we pray, Father, make us strong, but we can only be strong as we are vessels through which you work. And so let us be weak and let you be strong acting through us. And we pray that our faith would be sound, that we would not be uh, criticized like these people of Crete one day, but that we would set aside a lying, that we would elevate uh, our actions to be good works uh, conducted in a manner consistent with your faith. We thank you now for this time together and for your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts to draw us close to yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.